This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Micah Blanc, episode one, two, three. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. Really excited you're here. I'm also excited to announce that my first book is now live on Amazon. It's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. And it's basically your blueprint to quitting your job with real estate and maybe not the way that you think, which is single family house investing. It's in fact with apartment buildings. Big surprise. And it shows you how to do your first deal and how to do it without prior experience or your own cash. So it actually goes from all the way from the top level strategic mindset to the tactical level of the steps to actually do your first deal. And what's cool about it, it comes with a free companion course. So I created an entire online course that complements this book. Otherwise, this book would have been a thousand pages. So I put a lot of checklist templates and videos and other things in this companion course. So when you buy this book, you actually get an entire course that's free behind it. So really excited about it. It took me a year to write. It's endorsed by Ken McElroy and a bunch of other people whose names you probably recognize. So definitely check it out. And on Amazon right now, it's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. All right, speaking of financial freedom, because I'm really excited about today's guest, Jack Petrick, because he embodies financial freedom. He was a firefighter for 15 years and he quit his job with, guess what? Apartment buildings. Now, did he start off with apartment buildings? No, he started off with single family houses, like 90% of the other people who are financial free. And then they quietly actually do it with apartment buildings. And that's exactly how Jack's journey was. Everyone's journey is a little bit different, but there's certainly commonalities with it. So I'm really, really excited to unpack Jack's story. So let's get right into it with Jack Patrick. Here we go. All right, Jack, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm really excited about your story because you're obviously a full-time investor now. Uh, you had a job, firefighter, and you had quite a rocky journey to get to this place. So I can't wait to unpack it all. But just give us a, a quick introduction before we drill down. Yeah. So my name is Jack Patrick. Um, I'm now a full-time real estate investor. But previously, I was a fireman paramedic for the city of Strongsville. And that's a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, about 15 years ago, got out of uh, high school and I really didn't have a vision of what I wanted to do. You know, at the time I knew I was in college material and uh, just, just didn't have the drive for it. So um, did a few things and um, got, you know, landed to become a fireman. And at the same time I had got a, a real estate bug after reading the book, Rich at Poor Dad. So I kind of groomed that and became a self-taught custom home builder. And uh, we built a number of custom homes. And at the same time, we were buying and acquiring um, single family rental properties. So in a nutshell, over the course of uh, about 15 years, we built up to about 100, 100 units being single families and multifamily. And then it just came a point where it just made sense to uh, leave the fire department. I love it. Thank you for wrapping it up in two minutes or less. So now let's get into the meat. So back when you, in the day when you uh, first got into real estate investing. Why, why did you even get started with real estate investing? Like a lot of people just kind of go through life and they're you know, happy or maybe they're not happy. But what, what, was the, what was the reason that you started getting into real estate and then in this case development and then houses? What, what prompted that? Honestly, the real core beginning of it was the book Rich Dad Poor Dad. And just thinking about just changing my thinking, looking at assets versus liabilities, looking at cash flow, looking at expanding my financial education. That really was the catalyst of everything. 
there's a point that he brings out in the book, and I really relate it to the one subject we all need in life is the subject of money. And it's the one subject we're literally taught nothing about. So that really what was like the catalyst point for me and 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 just looking at looking at that and just looking at how I'm living and looking at how others are living and seeing where, where wealth is coming from. And it's not not just the revenue that's produced, but it's also the quality of life too. Yeah, that's that's right. It was the same thing for me when I read that book. I thought it was pretty smart and I had a pretty good job at the time. And I was like, man, you know, if I continue on this path, I'm going to be working another 20, 30 years. And then reading that book, I was like, well, there's actually an alternative. Like I didn't, I didn't even know there was another way. I thought, you know, I was just, you know, I was just programmed on a, on a single track. And so for me, even though there's nothing particularly wrong in my life at the time, it hit me like a brick. I was like, oh my gosh, I could spend the next 20, 30 years going this route, or I could spend the next 20, 30 years going this route. And yes. it sounds like it did the same thing for you. So in your mind, you said, okay, Robert Kiyosaki talks about real estate investing and you immediately got into house building. Like not normally the first strategy one gets yes, into. Yes. Why did you choose that strategy first? That's a great question because Robert Kiyosaki talked a lot about cash flow and new home custom, you know, being a custom builder is not necessarily that, that, that flavor. But um, just at the time, I just, it was something that I just had an interest for. Um, I, I just honestly, I wanted to build a home for my family and it just something that just appealed to me. The pricing of, of multifamily was was higher prior to the crash. And honestly, I didn't have the mentoring or the resources at the time to jump into multifamily. Yeah. So that was part of the reason also. Yeah, you and me both, right? I mean, I just did whatever everybody else at the, the RIA meetings did, which was, you know, flip houses, wholesale houses. Now, sure. I don't know who the heck was uh, building homes around you. I wouldn't say it's like the not, not the normal beginner strategy. But you started building some some houses, and then you also started getting to flipping houses or owning houses. What, what did you complement that with later on? So it was, a, it was a little bit of everything. So I started off building new custom homes, and we did that. Um, and I have to say, one of the attributes that, that I have and what a lot of other entrepreneurs have is the ability to be resourceful. Everything can be Googled at this point or found on YouTube. And it's really, it's our mind is the biggest limiter of what we do or how far we go in life. Um, all these glass ceilings that we put our, put in our way. So I start off with that, and we did that for up until the market crashed. And thankfully, I was able to sell my last property before the market went bad. And then the housing prices, I mean, nationwide, but specifically in Cleveland, Ohio, completely crashed. And I'm looking at houses that you know I could buy that are existing houses and cash flow those properties for less than what I could have bought the land for a few years prior to that. It just made total sense. And there was a lot of people in my circle of influence that, you know, because they cared for me, they just saw all the risk and all the concerns when I just saw the opportunity on it. So I started off, I had no mentoring, everything was self-taught. And because of that, I made every mistake possible. I managed properties the wrong way. I, I did my own evictions and I screwed those up continuously. I would listen to the sob story of tenants and allow the rent to get out of control. I performed all my work thinking I was saving money, but not looking at the opportunity costs that I was losing. I would perform my own work. I would hire cheap and unqualified contractors because they were cheaper. I didn't set clear expectations. I bought inferior materials thinking we're saving money, like cheap faucets, cheap toilets, only to have those things completely cost me 10 times on the backside. So I, I really did everything possibly wrong. But through that, I gained an incredible amount of experience through the operations of what to do and what not to do. And uh, I can really say that like, if I could go back in time and like explain to the, the younger me like what to do differently, there's two ways that we're going to learn. We're going to either learn through making mistakes 
or we're going to learn through mentoring and masterminds. And it is amazing how much my business has grown since I was able to plug into mentoring and masterminds. Because truthfully, the cost of my self-education was six figures in mistakes and seven and eight figures in lost opportunity. That's a great way to look at it. And a lot of people, you know, don't look at it that way. You're talking about the value of your time. You know, is, is your time well spent going fixing this uh, this toilet thing or buying a cheaper thing? Or is it is it maybe better to hire a proper manager, which is going to cost you money? And a lot of people say, well, it's going to cost me money, right? Uh, yes. The other thing is, hey, is, is it worth me investing in a $10,000, $15,000 coaching or mentoring program? That's a lot of money. And it is. But I see it all the time. I just had a call just yesterday with a guy who lost $23,000 in a multifamily and I was like, man, I'm sorry about that. You know, what what happened? And he just described and going through every single, you know, possible mistake you could make that created that. And I was like, man, if, if you had been through a mentorship or a coaching program, you might have it might have cost you like two grand, but not twenty three thousand. And it's, it's a perfect example of how, you know, short sighted sometimes we are. And I include myself in that. When I got in the restaurant business a long time ago, I didn't have a mentor either. I had happy years on, like everybody else, like maybe you did you talk about your medical thing. And I never looked at the downside of those things. And looking back at myself, had I had a mentor, they, they would have probably cautioned me and stopped me a lot, a lot of times. And it sounds like if you had a mentor as well, they would say, hey, you know, Jack, is this, is this time well spent? Uh, why don't you run this a little bit more like, like a business? And so it sounds like to you, you either learn it through mistakes and or through a mentor. And I, you know, there are people who just need to make the mistakes. And sometimes yes. we have to make mistakes. And I made mistakes. I just, I really would prefer to learn from others to avoid the mistakes. Though having said that, I've made so many mistakes that I wouldn't have learned those lessons probably anywhere else. How do you feel about the learning process? I mean, do we have to inflict pain on ourselves? Or is there some way to maybe, maybe not reduce the pain, but accelerate our learning process? I really, for me, the, the big shift on that was my mindset. So... I can honestly say there was a point long time ago that I had more of a poverty mindset. The mindset of how do I save a nickel? Like I literally, there was a time that I actually had like the gas buddy app on my phone and would see like who had the cheapest gas. Like that was so ridiculous. But the poverty mindset is like, you know, mentoring that's going to cost money or hiring a plumber is going to cost money or a property manager is going to cost money. When in fact, the amount of opportunity that you're losing. An abundance mentality is like focusing on what's going to be your highest and best use of time and focusing on that. But unfortunately for me, I didn't have that initially, but I can honestly say there's a chance I may not have fully bid on that in the very beginning just out of ignorance and stubbornness. Now, how would you have used your time differently? So you sat your younger self down and said, Jack, you're being an idiot. You shouldn't be going out, you know, doing these toils, doing that, buying that. Here's what you should be doing. What would that should be doing? In other words, what would you have spent if you had hired someone to do that for you? How would you spend your time otherwise? Uh, that's a great question. Mentoring and, and masterminds for sure. Uh, of being able to plug into people that have been there, have done that, and, and, and learning the, the proper way to shortcut that process would have been the first thing. As far as like, applying it to specific tasks that we could do. The most important things that we can do as a real estate investor is raising capital and nurturing those relationships, finding deal flow, on-market and off-market deal flow, and operations. Operations literally, in my opinion, is one of the more critical components because you can buy a great deal, but through operations, you can make a lot of money or lose a lot of money through that process. And if we have time, I, I, can, I can dive into that deeper, but... Um, I just feel like, again, with operations, you're either learning that through trial and error or you're learning that through mentoring. 
you hit the nail on the head, uh, actually all three nails, because those are the three things, right? Anything else that falls outside of that may not be the best use of your time. So you're constantly looking at, can I delegate this? Or can I pat, can I say no on this? Or can I delegate that? So you're right. You could might have been able to use that time to raise more money, to find more deals, improve your operations so you can make more money with what, what you have. So yeah, you're spot on about that. Now, so you were, uh, you were buying and holding houses um, at one point. And how big did you build that portfolio up? And, and at what point did you decide that you want to get into multifamily? And why did you decide to make that transition? It actually, let me just step back to, there was one point that I, I left off in the, the last subject, but I guess one of the other things that I, I would have told my younger self also, which will kind of roll into this, was to spend more time first focusing on real estate. I had been a fireman for, for 15 years through that time. And at the time, I thought it was it was a safe thing to do. I, I had a great job. I had a pension and healthcare benefits. And it felt like I had like a life preserver around me to financially keep me afloat. But when in reality, it was an anchor that was holding me back. I can say that th through this time that I also could have grown a lot faster had I been willing to let go of that, that career when I was at a financial point that I could make the switch. So, okay, you said you could have gotten full-time sooner than you actually than you actually did to accelerate that timeline. Absolutely. And honestly, that really did slow my progress down. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's important to first understand the business and make sure that you actually are, are, are cut from the right cloth for it prior to making that jump. But when the time comes and you are ready to make that jump, it's a lot easier to go full into it when you're 100% focused on the business. All right, but let's talk about that. This is not the first time I've heard that. Some people said, hey, I could have, I could have left my job a year ago, but I was afraid. Let's talk about that, that mental, that the mindset transition of leaving something that's relatively comfortable, even though you theoretically could. What was causing that delay in your mind? Why didn't you do it earlier? Man, that's a great question. Um, I think it all came down to, to my mindset for me and for a lot of people too. Um, it, comes down to, it comes down to fear. It comes down to not wanting to make mistakes or, or thinking too small. It, it also came also from listening to advice of others of you shouldn't do this. Or a lot, a lot of times we're all given advice. We're given free advice. And oftentimes free advice is the most expensive advice that we're going to get. We're being told not to take on investment or take on a business for something that has no experience having business or running business. And oftentimes a lot of people are so quick to point out all the negatives of being a landlord when in fact there's 30 times more positives than there are negatives with the business. And oftentimes we care about too much of what other people think, but when in reality, it's such a high school mentality of caring what other people think. Because at the end of the day, people's opinions don't pay our bills. At the end of the day, we have to be accountable for our decision and our actions. And part of the reason too why it just really forced me to make the jump and, and leave that profession is I could have easily done both. The biggest reason why I left was, was a regret. I didn't want to have the regret later in life looking back and say, I should have done it, or what could have I been, or how many properties could have I have owned had I made the full-time switch. But more importantly, the time freedom that I now have is priceless. M money is absolutely critical and important to all of us, but at the same time, time is our true asset that we can never get back. And from all the years of the fire department, there's been so many calls I've been on, some great ones and a lot of tragic, horrible ones. And nobody wakes up in the morning thinking they're going to wreck their car, they're going to die, or they're going to have some horrible, traumatic, life-changing event happen, but it happens every day. And each day we wake up, it's like, 
we take for granted that we're going to have tomorrow, but that's not always the reality. And we, we look at our families and our children, and so often we get so consumed in the operations and the business of life that we, our kids, they grow up before, before us. And I didn't want to have to be at the fire station or at work and missing anniversaries, parties, Christmas, holidays, vacations, and the time with my family. So it really was twofold of just having the time and making it count with my family, having a complete financial impact and change for my family, but also being able to like financially change my, my private investors too. Uh, my, my mom is one of them. And, you know, there's a lot of people that don't have a lot of money saved up for retirement. And the investments that we provide allow them to have retirement. It sounds to me, Jack, like uh, you became very clear about what you wanted. Can you talk more about that? Because I, I think that is fundamentally different between people who are, quote, successful, who get stuff done and people who don't. Sure. And talk to me about that that uh, process of gaining clarity of what's important to you and your family. That really was really helpful, again, for mentoring and masterminds. That's what really, really helped me take all of the various balls that I was juggling, all the multiple businesses that I was juggling, and really looking down at what my priorities are. Where am I at in life right now? Where do I want to be at? And what do I have to cut out? And what changes do I have to make to get there? And believe me, I, by no means am I the, the ideal product that I want to be, but I have made significant strides in being that person, and each day I'm continuing to also change that. And so what advice do you have someone who, you know, who wants to kind of do what, you, what you're doing, especially on the, on the mindset side? Because I think there's a lot of things that people can do on the mindset that if they skip that step, it's going to hold them back down, down the road. Absolutely. Um, honestly, mindset is the most critical piece to success, whether it's this or anything. And I guess the things that I would say is like taking action. You know, a lot of times, a lot of people can get like paralyzed with paralysis of analysis and not take action, but taking action is the king, but also taking action with the right guidance and help with masterminds, with mentoring, with, with, with success coaches. Always be willing to get beyond your comfort zone. We only grow when we're uncomfortable. If it's lifting, running, exercise, even in growing business, like if you're not having times where you're waking up in the middle of the night just stressed, like what did I get myself into? You're not pushing yourself to take it to the next level. And if you're comfortable and, and living a life where things are very easy, then you're truly not pushing yourself to the level that you need to be at. Now, speaking of pushing yourself past the comfort zone, you had built your portfolio up to, to a, a sizable portfolio, yet you kind of departed from that and moved into multifamily. Can you talk about the, the decision and why you did that? Yeah, absolutely. So, and there was also another hiccup that I had in between both those that I'll, I'll talk about that real quickly and then I'll transition to that. So one of the challenges that we have as entrepreneurs is, is the grass is always greener on the other side. So in 2013, my wife is a nurse practitioner and we had the idea of opening up a competing medical clinic to um, the CVS Minute Clinic. And this is a walk-in medical clinic that people would come in and be seen with, with or without insurance. And we secured like $600,000 with the SBA that we had a personal guarantee. Uh, went through two years of that and we ended up having to shut the business down. So we lost $600,000 that we're currently paying off. Otherwise, we lose our house. And we lost, who knows, multiple seven figures and lost opportunity because of, of switching focus from one thing that is working, making money, to another object that appears to be shinier. 
And um, it's just amazing that oftentimes when we look at, at the grass is always greener on the other side, it's funny that oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes that grass over there, it's greener because it's astroturf. So I had a period where uh, we had tried making a jump to into another another business entity, which ended up being a total failure. But during that time, my buy and holds each month continue to cash flow. And after we had spent all the time, effort, and work in rehabbing these value-add properties, they continued to spit off cash, even though I wasn't actively there managing and fixing and repairing. So that was a point that when that business shut down, and again, I had I had to make another decision, like where's our focus going to be on? It was just really clear that buy and hold investments were my focus. And at that time, the opportunity started to open up more multifamily, honestly, because I put more time into actually pursuing it as an option. Um, I pursued mentoring through my my time of, of flipping homes and single family rentals. That gave me more of a background of raising private capital, the mentoring that I was involved with, and just just generalized goal setting, just allowed me to want to push it to the next level, which took me into multifamily. And what has really been another reason for driving me that direction is just it's easier to fund deals. The scalability of it is significantly higher. And what I really love about multifamily is we typically only buy value-add properties. And when we're able to correct a problem like poor management, low occupancy, deferred maintenance, we can force appreciation onto that property and then be able to refinance our private investors out. On the single-family side as single-family rentals, I mean, the value of that property is held by what my neighbor's house is selling for. And that was a really good business for me, single-family rentals, not so much flipping, but single-family rentals. But multifamily, there's just so much more wealth that's generated in that in that space. Let's talk about it really quick. Some listeners who may not know what exactly what you're talking about. And I've come to the same conclusion. I flipped three dozen houses and held a few. Uh, but let's talk about this whole thing about forced appreciation, right? I think I think most people in the single-family house investing knows that it's driven by sales comps. So if, if you get $100 more out of a rental property, it, it's probably still going to sell for the same price as, as, a, as someone where there's a family of four living right next to us not producing any income at all. So sure, you're very sure. market-dependent based on when the house sells for now. And with apartment buildings, it's not like that at all. Can you explain why, why, there, why there's a difference there? Absolutely. So uh, one of the apartment buildings we bought, one of the first ones I bought was a 27-unit apartment building. Um, I have a partner on it. He's a phenomenal operator. Uh, we bought the building at 50% occupancy. There was a sewer line that was going outside and somewhere as it exited the property. There was a backup at, at that point, and it resulted in the lower apartment units becoming flooded. And um, half the building moved out. The, the owners of the property either didn't have the money or didn't want to spend the money to rehab the property. So we bought the building at a substantial discount. So we bought the building, again, 50% occupancy, the rents were low, and we went in there and performed the full renovation of the property. We hardened the property, meaning we put in like vinyl floors instead of carpeting to reduce our, our turnover costs and um, spent a lot of time in the operations to tighten that down so we can minimize our turnover costs and maintenance and maintenance staff. And we got the building up to 100% occupancy. We took the rents up about $150 per unit. So the building just appraised for $725,000. So that we were able then to pay back our private investors. Uh, we have, you know, our lender right now is, is one bank instead of multiple entities. And that quickly, we were able to increase the value of the building just by making corrections to it and had nothing to do with what the market was doing. Exactly. It's all just better management. A lot of times, the kind of deals we love are the self-managed properties. 
right? People have self-managed and they're doing a good job, but they're not aggressive about growing the rents or not making it nice and shiny like the guy did two years ago. And, and all we have to do is put a professional property manager in place and let them do their stuff. And they increase their rents over the course of 12 months to buy $100. And that, of course, increases the net operating income. And with that, the value of the building. And that's like, that's why I love that. And I understand that about multifamily. And I can actually force the value, like there's a forced appreciation over a very short period of time, take the money back out and basically have no money in the deal at all. And then do it again. Take that money, uh, return the money to the investors. The investors are going to go, why are you giving me money back? What else you got? They're going to continue reinvesting, reinvesting, yeah. and reinvesting. And that is fabulous. I mean, kind of like you, I, I don't know if I would call it object, you know, shiny objectitis necessarily. But, you know, you get to a point where things are going well and you're like, what can I do to expand? And then yes. sometimes you you look at things of a business that has no synergies with the other business, kind of like, like you went through as well, like my restaurant stuff. And you don't really actually, largely because of ignorance or maybe lack of guidance, there's some issues with the business itself. And I found yes. that multifamily checks so many of the boxes that some of the other stuff that I've done simply did not have that box checked, right? House flipping, great money. Nothing passive about it. Always issues with yes. contractors, with agents, you know, even if you have a team play. So checked off the real estate thing and making money thing, but it's not a passive lifestyle, yes. right? So stuff like that. And people don't even think about that. You know, we go to these real estate meetings and we're like, I want to be a real estate investor. No, you don't. You want, you actually want to control your time, right? Yes. And you're using real estate as a vehicle. And a lot of people don't realize, oh, if I'm become a wholesaler or a house flipper or shoot even a landlord, I don't actually control my time. And that's what I love about uh, multifamily. So obviously you, you realize that. Uh, how did you make to actually transition into multifamily? As I know, you mentioned you had a partner and obviously at, at this point you were getting coaching and training for that. So you didn't come in there completely uneducated. But how did you uh, talk about your first deal, how you found it, um, how you partnered on it, maybe how you uh, funded it? Sure, absolutely. So um, funny enough, um, <laughs> I actually found the property through social media. You know, there's so many different outlets to find to find multifamily properties. And the one thing that is very different about multifamily is 95% of the time you're not going to log into normals or the MLS. You're going to find it that way. Most of the time, they're going to be held by commercial brokers, and they're going to be held typically within that brokerage. That broker will be able to make commission from both sides, the listing side and the selling side, if they can secure that buyer. And because of that, it is it is more challenging. So you have to build relationships. That is one way, but on, th on this specific deal, um, I actually came across on Facebook. The property was available. It was about four hours away from me, so we, I had to take action. I jumped in my truck, uh, drove, down, drove down about four hours, uh, toured the property, and immediately, it, it, to me, it was a home run deal. In my immediate market, deals were becoming a lot harder to find, so I just, just opened up my search searching parameter. It's like somebody a while ago told me a really good quote. If you're having, having a hard time finding deals, you either have to expand your market or your marketing. So that's essentially what we did. Well, that's true. And a lot of people said, oh, I can't find I can't find a deal. And they're looking in a specific area or a specific size in a specific area or they have very narrow requirements. And so you recognize yes. that I need to expand my requirements and maybe go where the deals are. Can you give people guidance about how many deals you looked at before you actually closed on this one deal? Is it the first one you looked at? Did you close on that or did you maybe look at others around that? No, and honestly, in this space, you have to turn over a lot of rocks before you find a deal. It's just, and people get discouraged oftentimes, but there's an amazing book that's called Go for No. And the whole premise of that book is instead of trying to find a yes, make a goal of 100 no's a day. So even if you do get a yes, 
you keep going on towards your goals because your goal is really to get as many no's as possible. And realistically, there's a lot of bad deals out there, but realistically, that's our opportunity to be able to find those deals. So, you know, we're putting, I have a virtual assistant that is basically scraping every name that we can find um, of, of commercial agents and brokers. So like we're going in loop net and pulling down every agent. We're then cross-referencing the agencies that they work for or the brokerages and pulling down those additional names. Occasionally there are apartments that do fall in the hands of residential real estate agents and they will put them in the MLS. So if you click in the commercial tab and you export all the sales for the last five years, you can easily have that VA scrape all that information of who those agents were because occasionally residential agents do get deals. We're Googling, you know, the top six or seven brokers within each, um, each city, you know, Marcus Millichap, for example, Keller Williams commercial, so on and so forth, and putting together this massive list where we're constantly practically reaching out to brokers. I think it comes down to a lot of people just want to go for the low hanging fruit. And everybody can do that. But what are you and I doing differently to be able to find deal source? Are we looking at Facebook? Are we educating wholesalers? Are we sending out direct mailers? Are we looking at commercial properties that are backed up in taxes? Are we checking like the court and eviction records to see what, what apartments possibly are going through more evictions? Because landlords, especially property owners that are functioning as their owner and their operator and they're the property management, they often get very discouraged very quickly with evictions. So evictions is a very highly motivated time in that investor's life where they may be willing to sell. That this is just a few strategies that we use, but we're ultimately trying to put as much resources and marketing into finding as many deals as we can. Yeah, so clearly what you're doing is you're putting a lot of lines in the water, right? You're, you're going exactly. to LoopNet and you're building a list of uh, brokers and we teach the same thing. It's, uh, you know, 98% of the deals are going to come through brokers. Build relationships with those because their job is to know every single apartment owner in the city and they're taking the lunch or sending them letters. So when that owner is ready to sell, they're going to call one of those three to four brokers in the area and you want to be, you know, in with them. And the holy grail, as you know, is getting these off market or, or pocket listings or, yes. or early previews where, you know, he's, uh, the broker's releasing it to five, you know, five guys that he knows uh, is going to be able to perform on that. And that's where the magic happens. Now, it might take you a few weeks, a couple months to get to that point and build relationships. The bottom line is people always say, oh, it's really hard to find deals right now. And it is. I think it's a more balanced market. It's not like it was in 2008 when everything was for sale and no one, everybody sure. you know, was afraid of buying. And the people that are hustling, kind of like you are, and they're calling people, they're meeting people, they're going to the courthouse, they're doing all this stuff. Magically, they're actually doing deals. Like, how are these exactly. guys? They're getting so lucky. No, they're not. Look at the leads they're generating. Look how many, look how many deals they're, at, they're analyzing, right? So it's really that that mentality of, of a numbers game that everybody in real estate knows it's a numbers game. So you're doing all this stuff and one of these guys on Facebook materializing at a 27 unit. So what came next? We basically put the property under contract and um, next part was financing. So it is a lot more challenging trying to, uh, to take down an apartment building that's at 50% occupancy versus 90% occupancy. You know, it really narrows down the, the, the lender's options. So realistically, we either have to close with private capital on the whole property or with a hard money lender. So ultimately, it was a lot easier and simpler. It did cost a little bit more for me to close with a hard money lender. Um, so on that property, we closed paying 15% interest on it. But as high as that sounds for somebody, the beautiful part about it 
even though that building was at 50% occupancy, the entire debt service on a monthly basis was covered through our 50% our occupancy. I have a number of property flips that I'm wrapping up right now. There is zero income coming in those properties until they're sold. Like we're talking six months or more of holding costs that, that, that have to be, you know, be coming out of somewhere. But it was so nice being able to have those payments coming out of our occupancy at 50%. So you'd have a hard money loan. How much of that were you able to, how much did you have to come out of pocket for that to, to do that with a hard money loan? On that one, they required um, 60000 for us to come out of pocket. And the beautiful part about it is I use my private investors and I secured a note and mortgage with my private investors to be able to come up with that additional capital. So you raised that 60000 from a private individual and you just paid them yes. interest on that on that loan essentially or did you make them equity? Yeah, so what we did is um, my private investors, we pay, we pay 12% annually. We pay them on a monthly basis. And compared to the revenue they're receiving off their 401ks or bank CDs, you know, we're crushing it. We're actually able to secure it against the property. We have the track record. We have the experience. And, and raising private capital, that's something that took me a while to, I'm not going to say perfect, but to definitely um, get a lot more comfortable with. But ultimately, it, it's relationships. It, it's showing integrity. It's showing a track record. It, it's not so much what's their return. The concern is more of their return. What is your character or my integrity that I'm going to be able to perform? And if that deal goes bad, then I'm going to pay you back regardless if this deal goes bad or not. Because that's the integrity we have to have when we raise capital. We're not playing with somebody's money. We're utilizing somebody's hard-earned retirement that they've spent 30 years building. And that's a responsibility we take very seriously. So to answer your question, the hard money lender provided the majority of the capital close. We raised some private capital. And then we also raised some additional private capital for the rehab of the property. So we went through, we turned the property over, we got the occupancy up to 90%. We started the refinance process. And then during that time, we took the occupancy from 90 to 100%. And then at that point, we actually currently have a waiting list on this property. What was the problem with this property, Jack? Why was 50% empty? Oh, this was the property where that, the sewer line had backed up into the property. So it, it, was, it was a very simple solution. Um, you know, we, we, we went through and we fully renovated the properties. But more importantly, we also continued to renovate the, also the additional properties that even had tenants in there. So many times when, I guess, the, the best way to describe it is when we have inexperienced operators that are, are running a property, they're so concerned about sucking all the cash out of the property, they're never ever looking to put money back into the property. And I found the best way to have a competitive advantage over most of our competitors is to provide a nice, updated, clean, renovated property. And when we do that, it is so much easier to be able to lease the property out. We generally will have a waiting list for these properties. Our maintenance is lower. Our overhead is lower. Our turnover is lower. Our tenant satisfaction is higher. And just overall, it's a better experience for all of us. But for those operators that don't have that mindset and their only interest is to suck the cash out of the building, it just it creates a downward spiral for everybody involved. Yeah, and we definitely want to avoid that uh, downward spiral. It creates opportunity for us as well. What was your capital repair budget per unit? And did you have this thing professionally managed or did you guys self-manage this? We were at uh, about $4,000 per unit on the turnover. And um, currently at the moment, we initially were self-managing it during the process because we had such a heavy turnover and we're actually in the process of, of turning that over, that management over. 
What I like about this this deal, Jack, is all that, there's m- multiple things I like about it. Number one, uh, the way you found it, creativity to find it. Number two, you had none of your own money in the deal. So people could say, oh, I don't have any money. Well, Jack didn't have any money to put in this deal either because he raised it and then he got the rest from a hard money. And the other thing also is the problem was very clear. And I love properties where the problem is very clear, where the business plan is, is very, very clear also. I always get a little hazy when someone says, oh, I can, I can increase rents by $75. Well, why? And there's not a clear reason why. There's not a clear problem. This clear problem. Hey, sewer pipe burst. Everybody moved out. Owner, for some reason, not putting money back in to fix it. Uh, downward spiral. And, and I love that because you go in and you can fix that problem. And, and within just a few months, uh, the problem is fixed and tenants are moving in and you're cash flowing. So what a great deal. And you were able to refinance uh, out the hard money lender? Yes. Yes, we did. Fabulous. Fabulous. Basically, it's just rinse and repeat. We did that to a second 27-unit property that we're in the process of, of refinancing shortly. Uh, we had a 72-unit property that was under contract, but it fell apart during due diligence. Uh, we had a package of 1,300 apartments down in Florida and Georgia that you know, is a similar situation, but you know, the opportunities are there. It's just a matter of how much effort are we putting forward to expand our, our, our network, our networking deals, our processes, and just our mindset overall. Yeah, exactly. And in your mind, uh, how important was that first deal to you? Oh, it, it was huge. It was huge. I mean, I've, I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time and talk about the law of the first deal. And it's so true. It's that confidence piece of the deals are there. And it's also the, the proof of concept too, that you know we hear about buying a building and forcing appreciation, refinancing out, but it's nice once you actually complete that first process. It just opens up the second, third, fourth, and fifth deal. And plus, with our private investors, when we're able to repay capital and provide a great rate of return, and they can physically see the quality that we're doing, the job we're doing, it just also opens up a lot more opportunities for investing. Because most people, when they want to invest, they want to dip their toe in the water. We'll have five grand, 10 grand, 15,000, then it turns to 100, then it turns to 200. And it's just, it's just a natural progression. So what is your advice to someone who, who wants to be in a position that you're in right now, which is uh, you control your time um, and someone says, hey, I, I want to do what you do. What is your advice to them? How do they get started? I would say taking action. Um, taking action by looking for deals, talking to brokers, talking to investors about if they have an interest in investing in a hypothetical deal. And instead of coming directly, so direct, like, will you invest into money? But sometimes that conversation get awkward. You know, phrase it like, do you know of anyone that might be interested to invest in a deal that might look like this? Mentoring and, and mastermind mining for me it was a huge game changer. And honestly, Michael, the course that you provided was one of those resources that I also utilized. Um, your syndicated deal analyzer was the first product that I had purchased. And I went through and I was like, this, this spreadsheet could order pizza to Hong Kong if I wanted. Like it was insane the amount of metrics and the um, amount of calculations that went across all the various tabs. And then from that, that led into your course. And there, there was a tremendous, tremendous amount of value that you provided. And I, I do appreciate that. And then I, t- I took that and I expanded upon that. I, um, I, I also have other local mentors that I, that I met with and that I offered to JV with. And again, it's, it's just, it comes down to taking action. Yeah, it really, it really does. And sometimes we get overwhelmed by the concept. And I have this thing where I talk about just doing the next three things. Like you think about, oh, I'm going to do my, I'm going to quit my job with real estate. Oh, I'm going to do my first deal. It's like, that's so overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. Just doing the next three things. Like everybody knows 
the next three things to do. At least that for me, I just keep everything, you know, uh, bite-sized. And, and then, you know, reminding yourself of the why. Sure. And I think getting clear about that, and especially if you, you know, if you, if you, and it gets you through your bad days, right? If you have a down day and you're like, ah, you know, this is stupid. I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. Sure. And if your why wasn't as strong as it was to begin with, it's very easy to go back to your former life. And in your case, apparently it was unacceptable to stay where you, where you were. It wasn't. And, it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So talk about your life now, because it's kind of fun to kind of talk, compare and contrast you know, Jack's life today from, let's say, a year ago. I mean, what what's it like not to have to, you know, work? Uh, what's it like to be able to control your time? It's absolutely amazing. Um, as a firefighter, we have a lot of time off. We work 24 hours. We have 48 hours off. So we don't have the typical, you know, nine to five schedule, but it, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible being where I have to be when I want to be on my time and my terms. As a business, it, it was amazing just, just again, just, just looking at what are my highest producing activities and focusing on that. It's amazing the amount of goals that we've written off, written down and see the ones that we have accomplished so far. And it, it's powerful when you write down your goals and so few people actually do it. But I got to say that also one of the biggest contributions to the quality of life that I'm experiencing and I'm going to continue to grow was the decision to hire an assistant. Every single entrepreneur needs an assistant, and it is the fastest way to double your revenue. If you look at a given day of everything that you do, everything I do, it falls into two categories, activities that grow your business or it's busy work that just has to get done. And the more that you can offload that busy work of volumes that have to get done or it's non-revenue producing, where you can focus on your strengths it's amazing how much more revenue you'll turn over and the quality of life that we'll have through that process. So let's, let's talk about that uh, because you mentioned it before and it's really important. What do you use your assistant for? Give us some ideas about what one could delegate as a real estate investor. Wow. So creating of notes and mortgages, all investor payments, newsletter updates, using virtual assistants again to, to put together that list of, of, of brokers that we want to look for private investors, and other data researching. Communication with lenders. So all of my financial documents are loaded in Dropbox, and anytime there's any financial communication between the lender, that goes to my assistant. Um, I've even taken the point of, of systematizing, put together a checklist of all the metrics that we need to keep track of. So we talk about KPIs, like key performance indicators. What are the KPIs that we have to track with our property manager to make sure that our properties are financially in the best, they're financially performing the best position possible? You know, if a property is being, it's in the process of being marketed, how many showings did we have? How many applications were turned in? Like that's a KPI we have to track. Rent collections, turnovers, like, like all of our businesses are slightly different, but we have to be able to track and measure those KPIs. So, Ultimately, the goal is to outsource everything with the exception of raising capital, finding deals, and tightening up processes. Those are my three highest and best use of, of my time. And I can only focus on that by delegating all the rest of the activities that don't produce revenue or growth for my company. Yeah, that is indeed your highest and best use for any real estate investor. So thanks again for, for highlighting that. So what's, you're definitely running this like a, like a business and not like, like, like a hobby, I can already tell. So what's next for you? What are some of your, your goals in the next year or so? Next year, I want to get into, I want to get into a thousand multifamily units in the next year. 
Another goal that I have is, is I really want to be able to build and develop new multifamily properties. I was down in, just down in Florida over the weekend. Uh, we actually bought a vacation, a VRBO vacation rental in Orlando. My partner and I, we, we bought a second property, but um, I actually had met two days with a real estate developer and I uh, have, have already got some work going on that side, but I really want to have my time focused on expanding my multifamily portfolio, new multifamily, but also again, expanding our, our value-add opportunities also. That's fantastic. So one of the things that full-time real estate investors, like uh, our coaches that work for us, they're all full-time investors. And one of the things that aggravates me more than anything else, Jack, is they're constantly taking vacation. They're always on vacation. <laughs> uh, so how has your life kind of changed when uh, you're full-time? Is there any, any other hobbies or volunteer activities or any kind of things that you're pursuing that you would have otherwise probably never had the bandwidth to even think about? Um, honestly, what you just mentioned, vacations, that, that, that is a huge, huge one for me. But um, when I'm on vacation, I'm always still working the business. But what I really like about that time is just being able to pull out of the business and think about the business. How do we yeah. work on it instead of in it? And, and real estate, it is fully in my blood. And regardless what day it is, I'm always thinking about it, not because I have to, but because I want to. And I absolutely love it. It's also amazing too, just like last week, my son, we got a new bike for him. Uh, my daughter had some obligations and I was able to be there. I was able to put his bike together at two o'clock in the afternoon. I was able to drive my daughter to her event and just being present for their activities and the things that they have going on. It's something I wasn't able to do before. And there's no price or, or nothing I could, uh, could attain that to say that what I would give to, to not be able to do that. That's fabulous. Jack, how can people connect with you? So uh, my website is Petrick Property Group. It's P-E-T-R-I-C-K Property Group. And uh, I've got my, our phone number, email, and all of our contact on there. I'd love to have people reach out to us. And I'm also on Facebook, uh, Jack Petrick, and we have a link to that off, off my website. That's awesome. We'll put it in the uh, show notes as well. So, hey, Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey. I can't uh, wait to see what you do in the next year. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. I love what Jack said about the best use of your time. And a lot of us go through the same process because we're trying to make as much money as we can. So in the process, we try to see where we can save money. And this is a mistake. And Jack talks about it. And I love how he narrows down the scope to the, the highest and best use of your time is three things. One is to raise money, find more deals, and to improve operations and or systems. And I love that. Anything that falls outside of that, someone else should be able to do. And I just love how he describes the use of a virtual assistant to help with these things that are, are more administrative or a little bit menial. And even if you have to pay someone 20 bucks an hour, if you can take that one hour and you get another investor $100,000 so you can do another deal, that's by far more valuable than the $20 you spent on a virtual assistant. When you first set out on this stuff, though, and you're thinking about, it, my gosh, I'm going to hire someone at 10 hours a week or five hours a week, and it cost me 500 bucks. That's a lot of money, and it is, and it, and it really hurts. What happens is you do it, and you're like, ah, I'm thinking I'm making a mistake, and then you get into it, and all of a sudden it frees up your time. You're like, wow, this is great, and then your your revenue starts to increase substantially. So really consider your highest and best use of your time. 
The other thing he talks about is is getting a mentor, uh, and this is so key. And I I do believe that everyone eventually becomes successful, and I, I really do believe. I think I think you can figure stuff out yourself, and I certainly have. If I look at my restaurant expertise, you know, I I learned a lot, but I made massive mistakes and lost tons of money. On the house flipping side, I had a mentor, and and my I had my first deal within uh, the first set of postcards I sent out. And I get a little bit lucky. Yes, maybe so. But I had a mentor who showed me exactly what to do. And I just see the people that are joining our coaching program and they just, they just, they don't do the bigger mistakes. They don't make the bigger mistakes and they really get to the, they get their results much faster. I was talking with a, with a guy just a couple of days ago. And yeah, like I mean, to talk about a show and he had lost $23,000. And as I said, my gosh, that's terrible, John. What, you know, what happened? And he described what happened. I'm going to myself, my gosh, he just made four mistakes that if you're one of our students, we would not allow you to go down that path. And we would have been able to prevent that. Now, sure, he might have had a couple grand uh, that he would have spent, but he would not have $23,000 that he lost on that deal. That hurts. And the problem with something like that, which is even worse, is not the money you lose, but some people then quit and they stop pursuing apartment building investing, which is their their plan for getting out of the rat race. And that is even bigger opportunity cost. And that's the bigger shame of things. And so having a coach around really helps accelerate the timeline, prevent the big mistakes. So if that describes you, if you want to do those two things, accelerate timeline, prevent big mistakes, check out our coaching program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash coaching. Check it out. And if that you think that's for you, then schedule a free strategy session with us and explore if there's a fit for coaching. The other thing that Jack said is, you know, make the, he wished he had make the full-time transition sooner. And I, I hear that a lot on the show. And it's just because we want to be, we want to be cautious and we're also afraid. We're afraid to cut the, the cord of a, of a steady paycheck. But again, there's an opportunity cost. So while, while you're working a nine to five job, working eight to 10 hours a day, that's eight to 10 hours. You can't actually work on the real estate. And so people would achieve the result a lot faster if they could do it full time. So not doing it full time, there's a huge opportunity cost there. So uh, really consider if you're kind of at the cusp of that, how, what can you do to accelerate that? It's going to be around mindset, uh, getting comfortable around living with a certain degree of risk. Can you reduce your expenses? Can your, you know, can your wife support you? Uh, do you have savings that can sustain you for a period of months? So, so making that transition and really making it a priority is, is huge. And then his advice on taking action. It's so, so true. You know, certainly educate yourself, but there comes a point where you just got to do it. You got to do it and you got to do it and you got to do it. So hopefully you find that useful with Jack and inspiring. Again, what I want to do on this show is I want to inspire you to take action. I want to show you that it's possible to actually quit your job in one to three years. And that's really at the heart of this book here, The Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. I've collected so many stories now through the podcast and my interactions with people that I see patterns evolving. And I have years and years of, of experience and interviews in this book. And it's not just a fluff you know, mindset book. But it really shows you exactly how to do your first deal and then how that triggers the law of the first deal so that the second and third follow in, in rapid, almost automatic succession and you quit your job within one to three years. It's really an amazing phenomenon, the law of the first deal, and it's all made possible through apartment buildings and I outline exactly how to do that in this book. So head over to Amazon, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing, Michael Blanc. And check it out there. It's endorsed by Ken McElroy himself. He's going to be on podcast here in a few weeks. So really looking forward to that. So really appreciate you guys. If you love the show, leave me a review on iTunes. Love seeing those as well. And anyway, I appreciate you. Take care. I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. 
For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.